Please take a Bible, if you will, and turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. It's page 869 in the Bibles in the pews as we look today at another parable. It's been a few weeks since we were together, and I'd like to bring sermons from the parables over the next uh, several weeks. And today we'll look at the one that this, along with the parable of the prodigal son, would probably be the most familiar parables that, that people have, even those who do not read the Bible are familiar with this story. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Hear God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Jesus taught often in parables, and I mentioned a few weeks ago, but just to remind you that even though we find a few parables in other places of the Bible, we don't find many, and yet they comprise a huge proportion of the teaching of Jesus. Jesus, without question, intended parables to have life-changing implications. I mentioned also to you that parables are a teaching tool. A parable relies on the listener to make the connection. Haddon Robinson said that a parable is not an illustration. In an illustration, say in a sermon, the preacher will most likely give some kind of abstract truth and then try to illustrate it with a story or for some analogy from nature or from real life. But a parable doesn't do that. A parable is kind of tossed along beside the truth, but it's up to the listener to make the connection. I gave you the example that if I say up here, even monkeys fall out of trees, well, that's a parable. But if I go a little further and say, even monkeys fall out of trees, even experts make mistakes, then it becomes an illustration because I've made the connection for you. But a parable relies on the listener to make the connection to life. As I mentioned, this is perhaps along with the prodigal son, the best known, one of the best-known parables in the Bible. It's really two stories in one. 
Now, a fellow came up to me after the first service, and he said, you know, that was a nice sermon on the good something to this effect. That was a good sermon on the good Samaritan, and I've heard a bunch of them. If you're sitting there thinking, oh, no, this passage, I've heard this more times than I can count, so I'm just going to kind of doze off, and I know what's coming. Uh, I don't think you do know what's coming. It may surprise you. And the first surprise is it's really two stories, not one story. The first story is the question by the lawyer and how Jesus answers that. Now, lawyers in the New Testament were not exactly like lawyers today. They were similar in that they were experts in biblical law, the law of Moses. They knew how that was to be applied, the case laws in the Old Testament, to certain situations. Well, Luke tells us that that this man comes up to Jesus and ask a question, and it says to put him to the test. It doesn't necessarily mean that he intended to embarrass Jesus. It doesn't mean that he wanted to trick him. He, he was going to test what Jesus was made of. And he does so with this question about what, must, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the surface, that looks like a great question. It is a great question, but the way it's worded is kind of silly. I mean, when you think about an inheritance... Normally, somebody has to die for an inheritance to be left. You don't do something for an inheritance. And yet, that's the way he words his question. Well, despite the, um, the way he does that, Jesus gives him a serious answer. And he says to him in verse 26, Well, what is written in the law? Have you read it? It's as though Jesus says, Look, you're the expert. You're the lawyer. You tell me what it means. And the lawyer replies, love God, summarizes the Old Testament law, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, before we go any further, you have to take it in context. And Jesus is not saying to this man that you can get to heaven by uh, trying to follow these two commandments. He's saying that for the sake of argument, assuming for the sake of argument that you can live perfectly and love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you can put him first every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, and you love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you think about your neighbor, this other person who has needs as much or more than you think about yourself. You're always putting that person first. If you could do that perfectly, which no one can, then yes, you will have, you will inherit eternal life. Now, God's law cannot make you right. It cannot make you right with God. It merely points out the problem. I have a friend that he and his wife recently traveled. And on their travel to Asia, they went to the Great Wall of China. And he told me as they came, it's kind of ironic, when they got to the very end of their trip to the Great Wall, when they came down from there, his wife stumbled and said, Oh, I hurt my ankle. And he, being the loving husband he was, well, said, it will be okay. And they, they flew all the way back to America. Her, her leg was hurting, and she goes to a local uh, orthodon- orthodontic. <laughs> no, you get the idea, orthopedic. And, and they uh, said, your, your ankle's broken. <laughs> You've got a crack. And uh, didn't make him look too good. But what can the x-ray do? It can only show you, okay, there's a problem. She knew there was a problem from the pain, but they couldn't say, we're going to repair it now, we're going to use an x-ray. No, all the x-ray, x-ray does is diagnose there's a problem, and it shows you where the problem is. That's God's law. One of the uses of God's law, it just 
it's like a, an x-ray. It's like a reflection that says this is the reality. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I don't do that too well. Well, this lawyer begins to feel the heat. When Jesus says, do this, I think the lawyer can understand that he doesn't do this. No one does this perfectly. So he did what you and I have probably done more times than we can count. Knowing he's getting cornered in the argument, he asked for a redefinition of terms. Let's clarify what we're talking about. Just who is my neighbor? He's trying to get himself off the hook with the question. Now we come to the second story. So that's the first story. Now the second. To answer that question, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a story. The story has four, at least four characters in it. First, we meet the traveler. Here's a man. We're not really told anything about him. He's unnamed, probably by design. And he's going to travel from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Down being in elevation. It's, so I've read, about 3,300 feet. You go down this roughly 15-mile trip and you descend down to Jericho. And on his travel, we assume by himself, he's, he's robbed. He's beaten by this, this group of of robbers and thugs and they beat him and they strip his clothes which were valuable they, they take what he has and they beat him up so bad they leave him for dead maybe they thought he was dead uh, maybe they thought he was close to death but he's left there by the side of the road so that's our first character this this obvious need now the second character is a priest he's traveling down the same road now if you've heard sermons or lessons or taught lessons on the the Good Samaritan, sometimes we really lay into this priest. The reality is Jesus doesn't say much about it. We know that in the Old Testament, a priest was not to touch a dead body. It would defile that priest from a ritualistic standpoint. So we might guess that the priest thought that was a corpse on the side of the road, or if it if the man wasn't dead, he was near death. Maybe he was thinking about that. We don't know, but for whatever reason, he chose to keep going. He did not help the man. Now, the third character enters the picture, and that's the Levite. Levites had similar but different priestly duties. They served in the temple. They were kind of like assistant priests, you might say. He also doesn't stop. We aren't told why. Uh, we aren't told whether these men were just calloused or in a hurry or afraid, afraid that they might get robbed, that the robbers might be nearby. All we know is that neither one of them helped. And now we come to the shocker. And as you see how it's introduced there in verse 33, Jesus puts this character at the very first of his sentence. A Samaritan. That would have been a jolt to this lawyer or anyone else that was hearing Jesus because he's emphasizing now that compassion is going to come from the person of whom you would least likely expect it. If you've been around church or you've read the Bible, you know the hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans. It's almost legendary. Uh, the hatred that they had, the racism toward one another. And Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds and idolaters. And Samaritans viewed Jews as just arrogant, cocky, and thinking that they were right with God and condemning of other people. And when either group referred to the other one, they referred to them as dogs. D-O-G-S. 
for this group. Dogs, that's what they said about them. They meant it in the fullest sense of the word. And yet, here's this man for, because of the racism, you would not think that he would stop. And yet, what does he do? Verse 34, he goes to the man. He treats his wound with the household remedies of the day, oil and wine. The traveler, the victim, obviously is too weak even to get up. So the man puts him up on his animal, his horse or his donkey, and he takes him to an inn and he cares for the man there at the inn, this complete stranger. And then he sets up everything for his future care. He leaves two coins with the innkeeper. And he, it's payment, in a sense, down payment. Biblical scholars say this may have been enough money to care for the man for a month. So we see here this generosity and this compassion coming from this unnamed Samaritan. And leaving the innkeeper, he says, take care of him and I will repay you. If you spend more, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, now Jesus circles back to the lawyer's question. Do you remember what the question was? Tell me. Speak to me. Who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to flip the question upside down when he comes back now to the lawyer and he says to him, who was the man's neighbor? Who was the neighbor to that man? Not who is my neighbor, but who functioned as a neighbor to the victim on the road. And the lawyer responds, verse 37, well, obviously, the one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus says almost the same thing he had said at the end of the first story, go and do likewise. Could the lawyer do that? Could the lawyer go and do likewise? Could he meet the needs of everyone in his life who had needs, material needs or spiritual needs or whatever needs they might have? Of course he could not. Jesus, again, basically is using the law to say that you don't measure up, that none of us measure up. If you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will inherit eternal life, but the reality is no person can do that. None of us can do that. And because no imperfect obedience makes us acceptable to God, God's judgment says the soul that sins will surely die. No one can inherit eternal life on the grounds of our own merit. So we need a Redeemer, and Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, complete obedience. He loved God, and he endured death for us on the cross, that through trust in him we might know Christ and inherit eternal life. Does this remove our obligation then to love our neighbor as ourselves? No. When Jesus says, the law, what the law says, do this and you shall live, Jesus says, I've given you eternal life through grace, and this new life I give you will enable you to have real love toward others. So go forth and live a life of love and compassion for other people through the power I give you. Now here's, I think, the best definition, definition then of who your neighbor is, who my neighbor is. Your neighbor is anyone you see who has a need that you can meet. Anyone you see who has a need that you can meet. Now, the rest of the time I want to use just to make some observations about this. When we're honest with ourselves, and I don't know about you, but I speak for myself, I have to admit, I want to be one of the first two characters. I, I, I want to be the priest or the Levite, uh, not because I want to be a priest or a Levite. I just don't want to get involved. I've got things to do. I've got deadlines to meet. I'm busy. You're busy. We're all busy. 
And who wants to get tangled up in someone else's problem, especially a stranger? It's different if it's a person in your own family or someone you're dependent on and you've got a vested interest in and their well-being affects your well-being, but not this man, not this stranger, not in this rather dangerous situation. But what does Jesus tell us, follower of Christ? We've got to do it. We've got to do it. If we must serve strangers in this way, how much more so those with whom we are acquainted? The Bible has what we call a covenantal priority in our responsibility toward others. The first is to our family. Our first priority is to meet the needs of our family. The second is to the church family. When Galatians says that do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith, there's a priority there for other believers. And yet those are not at the exclusion of caring for all all other people. We have a responsibility to love all those with whom we have conduct. Uh, contact. Will others take advantage of us? Of course they will. Will others seek to try and, de- try and deceive? Isn't there a risk involved? Yes, there's a risk involved. And we're not obligated to be naive. And we don't walk around with shirts on that say, I'm a Christian, walk on me. We're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we have to be discerning as to what the real need is. The second observation is there's no doubt there's a barb in this parable toward the religious community. The fact that the churchgoers, you might say, are represented by the priest and the Levite, were outdone by this pagan Samaritan. The parable teaches, as does the Bible, that religion, so-called religion without love toward others, tangible love, is worthless. So whom would God have me love today? There's a sentence, there's a little phrase that during the process of preparing this sermon, I wrote several times. The Good Samaritan points me to both the way of life, the way to life, which is through faith in Christ, not through the law. It points me to the way to life and the way of life, which as a result of knowing Christ gives the capacity to love others. Now there's a, there's a verse in the book of 1 John at the end of the New Testament. And it says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is not just talking about in 1 John, your blood brother, if you have a brother. But other people, brothers in Christ. To say, I love God, is rather simple. Pretty much anyone can say that. And their actions may or may not back it up, but they can say it. Oh, I love God. But my brother is somebody different. I see him. I see and feel how he irritates me. I don't like how he corrects me. I don't like how he does certain things uh, or gets ahead. Uh, or talks too much, <laughs> for those of us that don't. Uh, um, I, I, I don't like that. Oh, I love God, but he, I, I don't think I love him. So how do we handle this? Imagine a, a battery in a car, and you go out to your car, and you on a cold morning, and you attempt to 
start the car and nothing happens. I mean, nothing. No lights come on, no dinging of the car that your key's in, nothing. The battery is dead. So you happen to have a recharger for the battery and you plug it in, you hook it up and you leave it there a number of hours and this, this power pours into the dead battery and then after a number of hours, when it indicates your battery's recharged, you take the charger off, you get in your car, it starts up, and everything is just like, like it should be. You didn't know you were going to get a, a technical explanation of 12-volt uh, electricity this morning, did you? But, you know, dead battery, juice, all right, you got it now. We are like that dead battery. Ephesians says we're dead in our trespasses and sins in our natural state. I don't have the capacity to love this, my brother. I don't have it within me. I don't have the ability, the desire, or the capacity to love him. And yet, as 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. That's like the recharger. I come to know Christ as my redeemer. He gives me a new heart. The Holy Spirit begins to produce fruit, one of which is love. Now I not only have the capacity, I have the desire. I say, I want to follow Lord, my Lord. I love him. One of those commandments is to obey, is to, to love this person. But I can't do it on my own. Uh, I don't have this affinity with this person. I don't have an obligation to this person. And help me, Lord, to do this. And God then pours his love through us toward this other person. If we had time, most of you could come to this microphone and mention examples of where God has done this in your life. I've heard too many of them. Where one of the first things God does when a person comes to faith in Christ is relationships begin to be restored that, humanly speaking, were beyond hope. They were beyond hope. So God says the way to life is faith in Christ. The way of life, once we have that new life, is compassionate love toward others. I mentioned her years ago, and she in no way claims to be a Christian or lives like a Christian, but Patricia Cornwell is a noted author. She sold over 100 million books, mystery books that she has written. And you'll see her name when you go in bookstores. Um, you will typically see at least one book by her. When she was five years old in Miami, on Christmas Day, her father walked out on the family. Her father abandoned the family. She said Christmas came to mean to her the anniversary that their father walked out. That's all it was. She said Christmas Day was just the anniversary of that. When she was 10 years old, her mother took her and her two brothers and they had moved to Montreat. Now they had moved to Montreat, North Carolina. It's in the middle of the winter. It's been snowing straight for three weeks. They're out of food. They're out of heating oil. And her mother at her wit's end cracks under the strain. She gets Patricia and her two brothers and marches them through the snow to the home of Billy and Ruth Graham. She gave her children to the Grams. The authorities came. They took the mom to a hospital where she stayed for many months. Patricia Cornwell later wrote that Ruth Graham saved her life. Not only her kindness that day, but helped place them in foster homes. 
but stayed engaged with her life. Ruth Graham saw her talent, as, while she was still young, she saw her talent for writing, as did her teachers. And they encouraged her to write. Ruth Graham put her through college at Davidson and later at King's College. And she would come and she would visit her. She stayed engaged. And I suppose that for the wife of a world-traveling famous evangelist like Billy Graham, whose face would have been known around the world, that probably was not a convenience. There probably was a high price that was paid as far as time and emotional energy and even money. But she was loving. What was she doing? She was loving her neighbor with the love of Christ. We love because he first loved us. But what about spiritual needs? We think of the Apostle Paul. I was reading where Paul and Silas are in prison in the ancient city of Philippi. They're locked up. It's midnight. It would have been dark. An earthquake comes. The earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison to such an extent that the prison cells can now be escaped from. The head jailer, after the earthquake, runs to the cells and sees that they're open, and rather than face what he would have faced as a Roman soldier who had neglected his duty, which was to be stripped of your own clothes and burned in them, he's going to kill himself with his own sword. It's dark. He can't see the prisoners are still there. Well, Paul sees what's going to happen. They yell out to him, don't don't harm yourself. And the man comes before him and says, what must I do to be saved? He'd heard them preach. He'd heard them talk. He'd heard their message. He takes them that night to his own home, and, and he and his family all come to faith in Christ. That was meeting spiritual needs. Paul and Silas were good Samaritans, you could say, in that man's life. So who are the people that God has placed in our way? It's different for every person in here. It's not up for me to tell you, well, you ought to help that person, or you tell me, you go help that person. It's as we live life, God puts people in our way. Uh, in, In this case, like in the parable, the man on the road. So the needs we meet may be material, food, medical care. It might be spiritual. Everyone needs that, the gospel. And you know why you and I can take risk? Because God does not. You and I can take risk because God does not. So the way to life is faith in Christ. The way of life is compassionate love toward others. Now that's the end of the sermon. Now I want to do something I never do. I want to make a personal comment to you that are members of First Presbyterian Church. Being a pastor here for so long has put me in an advantageous position where I know a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. I see a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. I become a conduit of of information sometimes. I've had people come to my house and say, I hear so-and-so has a need. I want to meet that need, but I don't want them to know where it came from. I want to remain anonymous. But I hear it. In the community, I hear it. You know that so-and-so did this. It's caring for people right out of jail, uh, former prisoners, people coming out of rehab. It's, it's giving to help things financially. It's, it's helping people in the hospital. It goes on and on and on. And I can't really talk about it. And you would be embarrassed if I were to tell about it. 
And so I seek to honor that. Man, I'm loaded with sermon illustrations if I ever go anywhere else. I mean, I'm packed for years. But I can't use them here. And I just want to say to you, with my whole heart, it is a privilege to serve Christ with this congregation, to serve him together. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are like that traveler dead, and the Good Samaritan Christ comes and rescues us. And you say that even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. So may our hope be in him and him only. May we be compassionate toward others as an expression of your love toward us, not to earn your favor. And we thank you for the people that have done this in our lives. We can all probably sit here and think of men and women and our peers and even children who have, you have sent who have met our needs and they didn't even know it. And we're grateful for that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.